Hello, family. This is the podcast. Where do we go from here? That is the question. The answer, forward. Always forward. I am your host, Larry Hogan. Today, I want to discuss integrity and ask the questions. Are we losing it? Or maybe a better question, do we ever have it? Better still, has it become subjective? America in particular, and the world in general, has always had to wrestle with the question of integrity. With all the atrocities that have happened in the world the last couple of years, to me, it seems to be a question of whether or not we do indeed have any integrity at all. First, let's define integrity. According to dictionary.com, as defined by Oxford, integrity is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles and moral uprightness, the state of being whole and undivided, the condition of being unified, unimpaired, or sound in construction, internal consistency or lack of corruption in electronic data. Using any of these definitions, are we losing integrity? Are there any persons or institutions that can live up to those standards, those defined standards? So let's forget about the world right now, just concentrate on America. Are there any leaders, be they political, spiritual, or cultural, that makes you feel confident and comfortable that they would and could be a symbol of integrity. Let's even forget about America and narrow it down to you and me. I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I'm not ashamed to say, based on the definitions just given, I too, I am lacking in integrity. And so are you, if you really are truthful. So I guess the question still remains, are we losing integrity and what is it costing us? The the core principles of my podcast, where do we go from here, has been to uh, base my discussions on the principles of political, cultural, and spiritual values. These are the values which I believe most people's lives are based on. And so again, with that in mind, let's discuss integrity. I'm going to start from a political point of view. Uh, I want to use as a comparative analysis a couple of movies that I just saw recently. I think they had a strong political message. (coughs) So, The first one was made in 2003. It's titled Head of State. It stars Chris Rock, Lynn Whitfield, and Bernie Mac. It focuses on Chris Rock's character. His name is Maze Gilliam. And he was a state assemblyman or somebody, nobody specifically. But he was selected to run for president by less than honorable and honest reasons and characters. They gave him little or no chance to win. As a matter of fact, the hope was that he would do well, but certainly not win. As fate would have it, Maze Gilliam, that's the name of the character, 
he uh, he finds out the truth and makes some drastic changes in his campaign staff. Through a series of circumstances, grit, determination, and encouragement from his brother Mitch, brilliantly played by the late great uh, Bernie Mac, Gilliam Mays Gilliam pulls off the upset and wins the presidency. The catalyst behind the win was when Mays began to use plain speak. He tells the truth and he tells the American people about the dire condition that they find themselves in. And this was, he was inspired by his brother Mitch. But the thing that kicked it off for him was he got, he adapted and used a simple phrase. That ain't right. Now, the film was made in 2003 for the 2004 nomination. Now, here is where art imitates life. In 2008, a little-known senator had little chance of winning with a funny name. Barack Obama became president of the United States. And he used a somewhat similar and simple phrase. Yes, we can. Now, this this was a comedy and part of it was crude and, and some may consider it tacky. But my point, there was an air of integrity about the message of the movie. Be true to yourself, no matter the odds. Put in the work and live with the results. Think uh, Hillary Clinton versus that same 2008 nominee, President Barack Obama. My second movie, it too was a, a romantic comedy. I like to call it a dramedy. It was made in 1995. It's called The American President. It had a, a, a series of well-known actors led by Michael Douglas, uh, Annette Bening, Michael J. Fox, Martin Sheen, and Richard Dreyfuss. Michael Douglas' character was the president. His name was Andrew Shepard. Annette Bening was a lobbyist whose name, character name was Sidney Ellen Wade and Richard Dreyfuss who played a Senator Bob Ronson. Now the storyline is President Shepard was uh, headed for his second term, just killing it. So he was assured, he just felt there was nothing that can stop him. He was in the 60s of approval rating, so he was on his way. They didn't, get, they didn't rest on their laurels, but he felt pretty confident. But it was all derailed by love, character, values, and loyalty to the Constitution. His political rival, Senator Bob Rumpson, challenged and attacked the president for his burgeoning relationship with the lobbyist, Sidney Ellen Wade. He attacked Sidney's reputation, and the president refused to engage and respond to the fake news. 
He thought it would be, it would go away, but it didn't happen like that. The president's approval ratings dropped dramatically. Now, when he was on top of the world, he made a deal with Sydney about a bill that she was trying to pass. And he said that he would support her if she got a certain number of, uh, of, uh, of votes. And so that, that deal and that relationship was put to the test. Because of Senator Rumson's attack on Sidney's character and reputation, the president's approval rating dropped. And so eventually, he had to go back on his word to Sidney. And because of that, she lost her, she did not achieve her job objectives. And she eventually got fired and lost her job. Hmm. Art imitating life. President Shepard, uh, his team of advisors, he they strongly encourage him to respond to aggressively to uh, President, I mean uh, candidate Rumson, before it all blows up in his face. And when it did happen, President Shepard lost everything, including his relationship, before he responded forcefully. Um, I would invite you to see both movies, you know, and, and get your own version of it. Because I'm, I, I think I'm a pretty good storyteller, but sometimes I might leave out some details. So please uh, check out both of these movies. Uh, Head of State and the American Presidents. Good, 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 enjoyable movie that you would like. But now getting back to what I call the art imitating life part. I've always questioned uh, who exactly are the American people that both parties are supposed to represent and which party has the best interest of these air quotes American people. I believe it was Ronald Reagan who coined the phrase democracy in America is that a shining beacon of light on a hill. And he bragged and talked about this great experiment called democracy and what it could be. As previously stated, the second movie was made in 1995. And here we are less than 30 years later. Uh, The sentiments of this movie is exactly what is going on today in American politics. And the sentiment was overconfident, uh, integrity challenge, betrayal, Love questionable relationships, I guess I could say. And so uh, let me set the scene for what uh, I want to do next. This scene, again, this movie is about relationships, integrity, the purpose of Congress, and doing the will of the people. Put in today's context, it would be uh, the liberals versus the conservative. Fox News versus uh, MSNBC or CNN, all of the things uh, that we deal with on a daily basis. It has taken root and really affected the entirety of the world and people's kindness and treatment of one one another. And so uh, let me uh, let me set the scene. President Shepard, played by Michael Douglas, is responding to the attacks played uh, by Richard Dreyfuss. And 
with the encouragement of this great line uh, discussion between Michael J. Fox's character, who was a uh, an advisor to the president, and told him to, you know, challenge him to attack and defend himself because Bob Ronson is the only person talking. So I've got two clips that I want to play for you. And I think it truly, truly, well, actually, I'm just going to play one, one clip. And I think it truly, truly defines where we are as a country. Please listen. America isn't easy. America is advanced citizenship. You've got to want it bad because it's going to put up a fight. It's going to say, you want free speech? Let's see you acknowledge a man whose words make your blood boil, who's standing center stage and advocating at the top of his lungs that which you would spend a lifetime opposing at the top of yours. You want to claim this land is the land of the free? Then the symbol of your country cannot just be a flag. The symbol also has to be one of its citizens exercising his right to burn that flag in protest. Now show me that. Defend that. Celebrate that in your classrooms. Then you can stand up and sing about the land of the free. I've known Bob Rumson for years, and I've been operating under the assumption that the reason Bob devotes so much time and energy to shouting at the rain was that he simply didn't get it. Well, I was wrong. Bob's problem isn't that he doesn't get it. Bob's problem is that he can't sell it. We have serious problems to solve, and we need serious people to solve them. And whatever your particular problem is, I promise you, Bob Rumson is not the least bit interested in solving it. He is interested in two things, and two things only, making you afraid of it, and telling you who's to blame for it. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you win elections. This is the podcast. Where do we go from here? I am your host, Larry Hogan. Thank you for listening. Hello, family. This is Larry Hogan. I am your host for the podcast, Where Do We Go From Here? The question has been asked, the answer, forward. Always forward. Today, I want to discuss what happened on February 26, 2012 in Sanford, Florida. Have you ever heard the saying, hindsight is 2020? Perhaps that explains why when there's something really big that happened in the past, for me, it's best to remember what happened, listen to the comments, then and now do a mental recap to see if what you said then can hold up to what actually happened. I also like to do a checkup and see where the major players are now. Were there any remorse? Did they express any remorse? Remorse? Did they change their mind or paint or point of view? Did the results of the outcome hold true? with regard to the accused behavior and or patterns. It is this attitude I take in my latest episode of Where Do We Go From Here? February 26, 2012, Sanford. What were you doing during that time? Do you remember? Do you remember the event? Did you talk to your children, especially those of you who have sons? 
How did you feel? Well, I'm about to read to you an assignment I had because in 2012, I was a student at Rollins College. The assignment was writing strategies, the power of the pen, and what difference it can make to record and write history or special events. And I think it plays an important role as we look back a decade later. So I am about to read to you what I wrote in 2012, and then we'll talk afterwards. I entitled this, If Looks Could Kill. A young man was shot to death because someone else decided that he looked dangerous and suspicious. I thought if looks could kill was only a saying. Now with the full backing of Florida's stand your ground law, looks can indeed get you killed. Trayvon Martin went to a local 7-Eleven store, purchased a box of Skittles and a can of Arizona iced tea and walked to the place he left. His father Tracy's fiance home in a gated community called The Retreat at Twin Lakes in Sanford, Florida. Didn't have a care in his world, care on his mind. It was February 26, the NBA's annual All-Star Game, which was being held and played up the road at the Amway Center in Orlando. As a matter of fact, it was halftime and 17-year-old Trayvon was on his way back home to watch the second half of the game. At about the same time, George Zimmerman, the neighborhood watchman, was leaving from his place of residence to run some errands. It was a Sunday night, and what happened next changed the lives of two families forever. George Zimmerman made a judgment call. He saw Trayvon and thought he looked suspicious. How he came to that conclusion, we will never know. I do not know how someone could look suspicious while walking. But in Mr. Zimmerman's mind, he did. I suppose one has to keep in mind, according to Mr. Zimmerman, there were some burglaries in the neighborhood earlier in the year, and a highly skilled, trained watchman like Mr. Zimmerman would know what to look for. After all, Trayvon, who was an African American, did fit a profile of other undesirables that came causing trouble in this nice, gated community. He was wearing a hoodie, walking in the rain, and Zimmerman's thoughts were, why was he here? Where was he going? He looked like he was on drugs or something. So just as he had done over 40 times before, Mr. Zimmerman called the Sanford Police Department to report his suspicions. After giving his diagnosis of the situation, the police dispatcher tape recorded Zimmerman's comment, including, this guy looks like, looks like he is up to no good or he is on drugs or something. He was walking around slowly in the rain looking at houses. When Zimmerman reported that Martin had started running, the dispatcher asked him if he was following him and he affirmed that he was. The dispatcher said, we don't need you to do that. Zimmerman said, okay. At about the same time that conversation was going on, Trayvon Martin was on the phone with his girlfriend. Confirmed by phone records, she reported that Martin expressed concerns about a strange man following him. She advised him 
to run. She heard him ask, what are you following me for? Followed by a man's voice responding, what are you doing here? She heard the sounds of pushing and suddenly Martin's headset went silent. George Zimmerman and Trayvon Martin got into a struggle. Zimmerman thought his life was in danger and fearing for his life, he shot to death an unarmed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Imagine, if you would, what might have happened if George Zimmerman had clearly identified himself from a position of concern and service instead of suspicion. Was it the hoodie that made Martin look suspicious? Could there have been a different outcome if he only would have identified himself or stayed in the car and observed? Two families, their lives have now changed forever. Stand Your Ground Law states that a person may use force in self-defense when there's a reasonable belief of a threat without an obligation to retreat first. In some cases, a person may use deadly force in public areas without a duty to retreat. Under these legal concepts, a person is justified in using deadly force in certain situations and the stand your ground law will be a defense or immunity to criminal charges and civil suits. More than half of the states have adopted the Castle Doctrine, stating that a person has no duty to retreat when their home is attacked. In 2005, under the, under the leadership of then Governor Jeb Bush, included the stand your ground provision, which gives private citizens the right to defend themselves against an aggressor without the duty of retreat. If he reasonably feels it necessary to use deadly force to prevent death or great bodily harm against his life, he can walk away without facing any charges at all. Retired Florida Senator Durrell Peden, who sponsored the law, said it does not protect George Zimmerman in this case. It is the fact that Zimmerman ignored the 9-11-911 operator's advice not to follow Martin that disqualifies him from claiming self-defense under the law. Peden said, when he, George Zimmerman, said, I'm following him, he lost his defense. Question was asked, was a crime committed? Sanford's chief of police, Bill Lee, held a press conference stating Mr. Zimmerman's assertion of self-defense until we can establish probable cause to dispute that we don't have enough evidence to arrest Zimmerman. The first person I talked to regarding this case was Orange County Sheriff Jerry, Jerry Dimmons who said no charges will be made unless the state's attorney approves it. According to skydancingblog.com, ABC News reported on the night Trayvon Martin was shot and killed, Sanford detective Chris Serino wanted to charge Zimmerman with manslaughter. State District Attorney Norman Wolffinger ordered Zimmerman released. On February 26th, 
Serena filed an affidavit stating that he was unconvinced of Zimmerman's version of events. Jarvis Fitzgerald, a local attorney, said his biggest disappointment is that the legal system has not worked in this case. There was a crime committed. Killing another human requires an arrest to be made. Not a conviction, but at the very least, an arrest. One can always be released on bail, but to not even make an arrest? How does that happen? Because of the public's outcry of the handling of this case, on March 22nd, Florida Governor Rick Scott announced he was appointing Angela Corey, a no-nonsense career prosecutor with 25 years as an assistant state attorney, before being named the state attorney of the 4th Judicial Circuit in Northeast Florida in 2008. She has prosecuted 65 homicide cases with a reputation as a tough conservative in the courtroom. Her critics say she is too aggressive, specifically citing her decision to prosecute a 12-year-old boy as an adult for allegedly beating his 2-year-old brother to death. Corey sees herself as a victim's advocate and she does not try cases based on public outcry or race, creed, or color. She does not see black, white, or Hispanic. She only sees V for victims of a crime. Tracy Martin and Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Fulton, Trayvon's parents, who have been a model of consistency in class under the intense glare of the public spotlight from the very beginning. They simply wanted information as to whether or not an arrest was going to be made. If you take two human beings, one has a gun and one is unarmed. The unarmed one is shot dead and the alleged killer simply claims self-defense and he is allowed to walk away. His word is good enough and the chief of police with the backing of the state's attorney says there is not enough evidence to make an arrest. No probable cause or nothing. Trayvon's parents said we simply want an arrest to be made. They have had to endure comments ranging from the clothing he was wearing to background checks on his schoolwork, on being a teenager, to the political divide in the country saying, black on black crimes happen all the time. Where's the outcry for that? Juan Williams said. And about the hoodie, where were the manufacturers of the hoodies? You make millions of dollars selling your merchandise and when someone suggests that wearing a hoodie contributed to his death, why did you not come out with a strong condemnation of that statement? It really doesn't matter whether or not a conviction of guilt or innocence is found, just as long as the system works. If you kill an unarmed man, child, or any human being, there must be a day in court. We are talking about a human life, and you must be able to defend and justify why you thought it necessary to take another life. It has to be more than because you felt threatened. I have buried a child before, and no parent wants to do that. My daughter Natalie died of complications from diabetes at a young age. 
her mother and I were somewhat prepared for the possibility of that happening. Tracy Martin last saw his son going to the store to get some sweets. His last conversation with his girlfriend, that's Trayvon, was about some strange man following him. Do you think he had any idea the 26th of February on a Sunday night around 6.45 p.m. would be the last time he would see his son alive? Do you think when Sabrina Fulton let her son come down and visit his father the next week, she would be a household name for this reason? The power of the pen. What does this story have to do with writing strategies? Everything. The power of the pen and through the eyes of history, every change, every catalyst, good or bad, happened because of the power of the pen. When the story is told through the eyes of different people, without any dissemble or hubris, with different opinions, different agendas, that can only be a good thing. It was the efforts of bloggers, writers, and activists that brought this to the nation's eyes. The killing of a young man, a young black man, sad to say, is not new. But what is new in this case is the power of the social media and the spread of news across the world. Do we as a society really want to place life or death situations in the hands of private, untrained citizens making a judgment call based on suspicion? It is tough enough for the trained professionals to make a split-second decision like that. And when a police officer does, he is at least reassigned to desk duties and in some cases even taken off the street. I am the father of a 13-year-old boy and I have never even thought about having to talk with him about how to behave in the presence of policemen. He personally knows the sheriff and retired police chief of Orlando. I know he now trusts and respects police officers, and I have no reason to treat him any differently. But when I hear stories about African-American parents teaching their children how not to run at night, not to make any sudden moves, and show no emotional outbursts around officers of the peace, it makes me shudder. I heard a commentary on National Public Radio from a young black lady talking about as a kid, she was afraid of the dog, thinking there was a monster under the bed. As she grew older, she realized there was no monster. monster. But the real tragedy of her story was to watch and worry about her brother growing up and still having to worry about the monster in our society of walking around black. No matter how successful he is, his status or position in life, no matter the accomplishments, many will still see, first see him as suspicious. So write, write with passion, believe in what you are writing and do not apologize. This is what makes the process so important. Yours could be the story that will be used to begin an entire generation of new thoughts. Think of what we as a nation were doing before those brave men and women told their stories through the power of the pen a long time ago. 
if not for the written word, will we have heard of the Tuskegee, Tuskegee Airmen, Rosa Parks, the victims of the Holocaust, Amber Alerts, voting rights, or the 99% versus the 1%? Let history judge us by our deeds and how we leave our legacy. Somebody had to tell the story to the masses and record this information to make the world a better place for all of mankind. As the late great Michael Jackson says in his song, Man in the Mirror, if you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. That was the article that I wrote in 2012 while the student at Rollins College. It expressed two things. My concern about the shooting of Trayvon Martin and the power of the pen and how writing strategies can help us to solve the mysteries, the injustice, or the unequal, unequal treatment of, uh, of people in the basis, on the basis of race, color, sexual orientation, gender, and whether or not you are getting a fair treatment from justice. So where are the key players now? George Zimmerman, most recently, has turned his attention to lawsuits. In 2019, he filed a $100 million lawsuit against Trayvon Martin's parents for defamation for a defamation case. It was dismissed. In 2020, he filed another defamation lawsuit against two presidential candidates, this time for $265 million. I think that case is still working. Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon. She has been most compared to Mamie Till Mobley. I'll have more to say about that uh, later. She, Mamie Till Mobley, is the mother of Emmett Till. He's the 14-year-old young man who was brutally murdered for whistling at a white lady, which incidentally, on her deathbed, confessed he did no such thing. The comparison is what Mrs. is Mrs. Till Mobley was unconcerned in, as much as something like what happened would happen. What was happening in the 50s and 60s would happen to her son. Even though she was aware of racism going on in the South, in particular in America in general, both incidences incidents started a nationwide movement. Emmett with the start of the civil rights movement and uh, in earnest, and Trayvon was the catalyst to get started with Black Lives Matter. The third key player in this was Benjamin Crump. He has now become known, a decade later, he has become known as Black America's Attorney General. One prominent person, and let's just leave it at that, said, if you turn on the news, and Benjamin Crump is being interviewed or holding a news conference or on a stage, you know something tragic has happened in the black community. I read several reviews and writings on the anniversary of Trayvon Martin's death, and at the very least, manslaughter, it is hard to prove first-degree murder. But one of the most interesting reads was the techno technological aspects 
and improvements that changed some outcomes. When I say technology, think Mamie Till uh, Mobley with uh, the pictures of her son Emmett in the 50s to Rodney King savage beating in the 80s to Michael Slager shooting of an unarmed Walter Scott in the back of in, in his back as he ran away and Mr. Slager written report of claiming self-defense. Then there was Philando Castile. It was live streamed and his live streamed killing in Minnesota by his girlfriend. And even after with video evidence, Mr. Castile announced to the officer that he has a loaded weapon in the car with a license to carry it, he was shot anyhow. And finally, technological by way of cell phone videos provided evidence in the police response and or lack thereof that led to the killing of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery. There are many more incidents that occurred in the last decades that I didn't mention, but hopefully you get the message. Technology does make a difference. In many cases, it doesn't help because of, number of continue, because of the number of continued incidents. One comment was until all Americans, translation white folks, started believing that this type of brutality and treatment has been going on for decades, it is not nothing new. But until all Americans, until you are outraged about the treatment of your fellow citizens, unfortunately, little will change. And this is despite of the recent wave of convictions. These are examples of the seeing, if you will, aspect of technology. Besides the empirical evidence of visualization, social media also provides other means. Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and other written forms of communication. It provides followers with information, content, and context that reaches out to millions, even billions across the globe that help to spread the message about what happened. Keep in mind, with some of these events, the actual response and arrest occurred months after the incident happened. Not to mention the explosion of stand-your-ground laws, the continued lack of deregulation of unlicensed gun owners, lack of permits, ease of purchase, concealed carry weapons, this contributes mildly to the rise of violence and vigilantism response where just the thought of perceived danger can justify the taking of a human life. 27 states already have adopted stand your ground laws. Five states have adopted it in practice and three more states have stand your ground laws but are applicable only if a person is threatened while in their vehicle. 35, well over half the country have as famed civil rights attorney, again, mentioning him again, Benjamin Crump said, it is a get out of jail free law, which one state that has neither castle doctrine or stand your ground law. I think it puts a lot of pressure on everyone involved and is very disappointing 
in, the, in what is very disappointing in the lack of concern for taking a person's life. I still would like to believe in civilized Christian-based society. We do everything in our power to protect living life just as many would protect the unborn. This is a comment by Benjamin Crump. According to the Urban Institute, the Stand Your Ground states, white on black homicides are 354% more likely to be ruled justified than white on white homicides. 10 years later and we still have so far to go. Actually, it's more like 200 years later we still have so far to go. I recently read a book titled The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone. The author is Heather McGee. She started her career as a consultant trying to figure out how the impact of credit and the cost of education was affecting students. Not ethnicity, century, but everybody, everyday students. And where she eventually landed was racism and what it cost the entire nation, and dare I say the world, in terms of equity, justice, and the quality of life. Racism in all its forms and names affect all of us in more ways you can imagine, especially in terms of economic growth. Let me end with this quote from one of the most progressive leaders in the world, Reverend Dr. William Barber. He is the co-founder of the Poor People's Campaign. The only way to ensure domestic tranquility is to establish justice. My comment behind that is, I thought justice was blind. This is Larry Hogan. I am your host of the podcast, Where Do We Go From Here? The answer, forward. Always forward. Thank you for listening. You can listen to this and any other podcast free wherever you find your podcast stations on radio, internet, or any other form of social media. Again, thank you for listening. This has been Larry Hogan, the host of the podcast, Where Do We Go From Here?